0: This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Good morning, Mill City. I'm glad to see that some of you came back after last week, and I know you'll be glad to have Chris back after this one. Uh, I'm glad he's back. Let's go to God once more and ask for his help for our time in the Word. Our father, we do look for that day. When the son of God will not just pierce the night, but he will blind us all on that day with his glory. And the darkness that we now see and sometimes feel intensely will be gone forever. And so, Lord, we ask that even now you would make that reality true in our hearts. For those of us that know you and believe this, God, we pray that you would remind us in such a a rich way that we would be ready to live for you again now. And those of us that don't, we pray that you would expose our hearts by your word, pierce us now so that we might not be pierced in that day. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and you can find your place to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Can you guys hear that reverb a little bit, the echo? I don't know if you guys can hear that back there, but I understand it's hard sometimes. Matthew chapter 25 in what's called the parable of the virgins. Some of us like surprises, some of us don't. When I first proposed to my wife, I first tried the approach of surprise, and she didn't like that, and she told me no. (laughs) So I then had to persuade her and go the more uh, open route of uh, long conversation, and we picked out a ring together. (laughs) But she said yes eventually, and we're married today. Uh, other times, surprise parties are, are exciting for some and, and not for others. Surprises can be something really good or they can be something bad depending on which, which end you're on. One of the more exciting and epic surprises in American history was when George Washington on December twenty fifth, 1776, at fateful year of the revolution, he famously crossed the Delaware in treacherous waters. You remember this? It was a surprise Christmas night. It was cold and in Trenton, New Jersey, the Hessian forces were uh, bunkered down and, and really not expecting an attack. Well, Washington was crossing over with more than 5,000 men and in fact two detachments couldn't even make it across that night. He was further up north from where the Hessians were and in the process two detachments didn't make it, and he was 3,000 men short of what he had planned to go into the attack with. So with 2,400 men, though, the next morning he caught them completely unaware, and he captured the entire Hessian force. And most people who follow the Revolutionary War recognize this as a major turning point in that year and potentially in the entire war, because after that, recruitments went up, and the morale of the, of the entire Uh, revolution was raised and the fight was renewed. Jesus tells us in many places that it will be a surprise to many when he returns. And that surprise, for those who know him, will be a delight. It could happen while we're meeting right now. And we would just exit this moment of delight right into eternity with him forever. And for those who don't know him, it will be a moment of terror that will never end. Jesus tells us this. And he tells us this so that we would respond now. So that that day would be a surprise to our joy. The main point of this this parable is that the wise are ready for Jesus' coming. The wise are ready for Jesus' coming. Read with me this parable beginning in verse 1. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There are four things I want us to see that Jesus exhorts us to in this parable and the first one is, trust that Jesus will return. Trust that Jesus will return. We see this in a lot of places in the uh, overarching context I want you to see as well. Jesus' coming is certain, even if some will doubt it. Jesus' coming is certain, even if some will doubt it. The reality of Jesus' coming depends on absolutely nothing as it relates to our understanding of it. You can know about it or not know about it. You can believe in it or not believe in it. You can know of Jesus or not know of Jesus. And yet, Jesus, the Lord of creation, is coming back to this creation. Whether we're ready or not. It's certain. The fact that some doubt means nothing to Jesus with regard to his second coming and in no way does it ever say that Jesus won't return because our doubt does nothing to to change that or to stop him from coming. Jesus has been teaching extensively about this here when he tells these parables he's telling these parables this one and the and the next one the parable of the talents he tells these in light of chapter 24. In chapter 24, he's talking about the end of the days when his second coming will be. If you just kind of turn, turn back to the beginning of chapter 24, his disciples came to him and they were asking him questions. And in verse 3 it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? So this... Uh, It uh, causes Jesus to begin telling them a series of, of, of teachings about his second coming, where he's giving the disciples warning signs in some cases, things to expect in other cases. And he's saying in all of this context that there are things that must happen before his return. They're interested in when is the moment of your return. Most people who study eschatology and get really excited about it are really interested in the moment of Jesus' return. They were too. But Jesus is telling us, he told his disciples then, that things will happen before that moment. So while we can't know the moment, we'll see that in just a moment, (laughs) while we can't know that exact time, day, or hour, which Jesus emphasizes to us, he tells us a lot of things that we have to know will happen first. So if you just kind of scan through chapter 4, I'm going, to, I'm going to reference several verses. But first of all, the one we just read in chapter 24, verse 3, there, there is a close to the age that must happen. We're in an, an age, a time that God has appointed that must come to a completion before Jesus' return. You, sometimes you might say, what are we waiting on? Well, we're waiting on the appointed time. We're, we're waiting on this season, this age that God has ordained to, to come to a close. We're not at the close yet. In chapter 24, verse 8, after he begins to say other things here, he, he mentions in these things uh, that, he, that, that he's been talking about in the previous verses. In verse 8, he says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about how false teachers will come and lead many astray. There'll be wars and rumors of war in verse 6. Uh, verse 7, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, why would he say these are the beginning of birth pangs? He's saying that because we might see those things and say, well, this is it. And Jesus says, no, these things are only the beginning of what must happen before he returns. If you scan down to chapter 24, verse 14, he tells us again, he says, then, then the end will come. Well, in verse 14, previous to that, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All through this section, Jesus is emphasizing things will happen, but the end will come. Jesus will return, and his return is certain. In verse 1 of our parable... You'll notice then in light of this, he says something very different than he says in other parables throughout the gospel of Matthew. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. If you study the book of Matthew and you're in uh, following along, you'll see that most of Jesus's parables will usually say, what is the kingdom like? It is like this or it is like that. He's Illustrating what his rule and his people are like. Here, it's different. He says, This is what it will be like at the second coming. This indicates to us that it is certain. Not only is it certain, there, there is a certainality of what it will be like in that time. And the fact that Jesus tells us about it ahead of time does not mean that it won't happen. In other words, you can't, we we shouldn't read this and say, well, because Jesus told us, well, then now it won't be like this. Jesus is telling us in spite of the fact that he tells us it will be like this. And then he tells us in verse 13, he says, watch, therefore, for, you know, neither the day nor the hour. We don't know the day or the hour. But look in chapter 24. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. The Father does know that moment. That time is fixed. This appointment that all mankind has is certain and fixed, and it is coming even though we don't know it. The day and the hour is already planned. It's already planned out. Part of trusting in Jesus is waiting for him. Paul described the conversion of those in Thessalonica as them, quote, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 think about that what is conversion what is it to repent of sins and believe on Jesus well one way of explaining it is to turn away from idols to serve the living god and to wait for his son's appearing if someone were to ask you and you were thinking about this what what are you doing a theologically correct answer would be i'm waiting In your busyness, we're waiting. What are you doing with your life? What are you waiting on? I'm waiting on on Jesus' second coming. Sometimes we think of trusting Jesus as only asking him for forgiveness, but that is only one part of a much greater whole. Turning to God involves choosing to wait for his appearing. Now, you might think this goes without saying, but the reality is is when, when you and I are coming to faith, we're often just thinking in terms of, I need forgiveness, and that's fair. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, "Come with me away." And that involves waiting. The belief in the certainty of His return is just as important as trusting in Him to forgive your sins. Why do you need forgiveness if Jesus isn't coming? Why do we need Jesus' death and His resurrection if his resurrection doesn't tell us that He's alive and He's coming again for us? You remember even in the ascension as he's departing, the disciples are standing and they're looking around and the angels say, why are you doing this? Just as he went up, he's going to come down again. It's important because Jesus wants us to be able to withstand the temptation to give up. It is those who endure to the end, Matthew 24, 13 tells us, that will be saved. Not everyone who starts the race will actually finish it. Not everyone who's a member of our church will be a member at the end. Not everyone who says, I will follow Jesus, and they even enter into the waters of baptism, will be a believer in the last day. Many depart from the faith along the way. Some of us haven't lived long enough to see that. Sadly, each year that goes by, I see that more and more. I'm concerned about friends of mine that I used to stand next to to share the gospel, and I don't even know if they believe it at all anymore. Jesus tells us that it is certain in order to strengthen our faith and remind us, I'm coming. You remember that even Peter said as much in 2 Peter 3, 1-5, he said this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through our apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers will come because they doubt his second coming. And they will scoff at us. And they'll challenge you. And they'll say, really? Really? You're waiting on the magical, invisible being up in heaven of the mythology story? That's what you're waiting on? Scoffers will come. It goes on to say, they deliberately overlooked this fact, going on to speak of the first judgment God gave on the world in the flood. You see, in that day, they didn't believe the judgment of God was going to come either. And all of this is connected to the second thing in this parable that Jesus draws our attention to, and that is that Jesus is coming while certain will be delayed from our perspective. So he is telling us to anticipate a delay in his coming. So while, while his coming is certain and he wants us to be dead set on that, he's also telling his disciples there's going to be a delay from your perspective. So we should anticipate that. That's helpful. If you are married, you know that if you're going to get home late or your spouse is going to be home late, you really appreciate knowing that there's a delay. And when you don't know that, it can cause problems. Jesus' coming is preceded by other events that must happen first. So I pointed to some of these just a moment ago, but look at this in our our passage here. Continuing on from verse 1, looking at verse 2, it says, five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept." But at, the midnight, at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Verse 5 tells us that the bridegroom was delayed in his return. So the story that Jesus tells, it's, it can be uh, tricky. I'm sure Chris has said something like this already this summer, but it can be tricky at times with the parables to, not to push all of the details of the parable too far. So, for example, in this one, here's the, here's the story of a bridegroom and there are ten virgins. Why are there, why are there ten virgins and not, and not one bride? Uh, and, and why are they waiting at midnight? Why is the party happening at midnight and not a little bit earlier? There's all kinds of little things that you might want to push on this and ask. But the point is that uh, these, what are called virgins here, are, are essentially bridesmaids. And for some reason, the bride is not present in this because the bride doesn't matter in this case. Here are the bridesmaids who are supposed to be part of the wedding party, and they're waiting on the arrival of the bridegroom to go to that party. They're very important pieces in the, in the, in the overall uh, uh, party that's going on, in the wedding that's happening. And for whatever reason, it doesn't tell us why in the story. It only tells us that there is a delay. And Jesus' delay is not like one of ours where we got caught up in something unforeseen, Jesus isn't stuck in traffic, but rather one that is planned. This is planned. That's why he's telling us about it. For him, it's not a delay. There, there really is no delay from his perspective. But from our perspective, there's a delay. So it seems like that to us. So as we were just saying a moment ago, many things will occur first. False prophets will lead many astray. This has to happen. It will happen. Wars, earthquakes, famines, all these will occur. Some will turn on us, he says, in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 24. In uh, chapter tr- 24, verse 12, he says that lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. It's hard to imagine a generation that hasn't gone by that didn't say, this is us. It's what we see. It's what we see in our own time, and we see it increasing. The gospel, he says, will be preached to the end of the earth, all the nations of the earth will get it. But you also remember from the parable of the talents in chapter 25, verse 19, look at that, scan your eye there notice even in this parable, which also begins, you'll notice in verse 14, for it will be like a man going also in the future. It's going to be like this verse 19 of that of the parable. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, Peter helps us with this. You remember in the same passage that I was quoting earlier from from Peter, when he talks about scoffers will come, he tells the saints, he says, remember that one day is like a thousand years with the Lord. God is outside of time. But for us, it can be a long time. This delay is at conflict with our faith. Jesus says he's coming, and not only will there be a delay, but many things must happen first, and that will actually look like Jesus is not only not coming... But the whole thing might be false. You see, your faith is actually at risk because of the delay. Jesus knows this. Consider how he says that the day of the great tribulation is going to be cut short so that we won't fall away. Chapter 24, verse 22. Look at that that verse. In 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of those who will believe, the days will be cut short so that we'll be saved. Otherwise, no one would be saved. The delay is a temptation and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a possible hurdle, it's a possible ditch that you can fall into with believing in Jesus and waiting for his second coming. So Jesus warns us to anticipate it. And so the next thing that we should, should realize is that the wise will prepare for this day, this delay. The wise will prepare for this delay. Again, in verse 2, we see that in this parable, there are ten bridesmaids or virgins. Five of them are wise. Five are foolish. What makes the five wise is that they took extra oil for their lamps. This is either some sort of a torch that had, uh, you know, what you might imagine like a rag or something that had to be re-wet, had to be dipped back in and then relit. And so once it was all burned off, you needed to to, uh, to add more oil in order to relight it, or, you know, many of you have seen those small clay lamps, something like this, with a, with a point where the wick comes out the front and the oil sits in the back. Either way, that's going to run out, especially if there's a delay and you're waiting a while. Well, the wise planned for this. They didn't know when he was coming. They didn't know how long it would be until the bridegroom would come, but certainly in one small lamp, it wouldn't get through the night. So the wise brought flasks of oil with them to refill it because they intended to wait no matter what and make sure that they were there when the bridegroom came. Five took extra oil to ensure that they don't miss being picked up. The details of the lamp, the waiting at midnight, the absence of the bride, again, all don't matter that much. The point is that being ready involved having oil in the lamp. Some have it, some don't. And the difference is wisdom versus foolishness. Now, you understand that the Bible doesn't use wisdom versus fool as in smart versus dumb. Foolish, the foolish are those who won't heed warnings. The foolish in the Proverbs are the, those who don't want instruction. They're the ones who won't listen to their parents, they're the ones who won't listen to anybody else. They're the ones who want to do everything by themselves and learn the hard way. That was me, and I was a fool. I said to my dad all the time, well, I want to learn my way. And I did. And I was dumb. Well, in the Bible, it's the same way. The wise want instruction. The wise say, teach me. The wise say, tell me if I'm wrong. Wise versus foolish. In verse 6, the coming of the bridegroom is at midnight. While Jesus tells us many signs, he still emphasizes that no one knows the day or the hour. Now think about this. Jesus has given all these signs that are going to happen. False prophets, people falling away, earthquakes, all this. All this stuff's going to happen. So you're going to know. And remember, he says to the Pharisees, you can read the signs of the weather, but you can't can't read the signs when the Son of Man is coming. Well, the point is, is that for the disciples, it's not like that. We should be able to recognize that his approach is near. Yet, we still don't know exactly when. One cannot pinpoint that time, so even though we know how to anticipate his coming, we do not know the day or the hour, so they they will still come like a thief in the night. Again, chapter 24, look at verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. If you knew Jesus is coming back on an exact day, at an exact hour, how would that change your life? Some of us would take advantage of that to just go crazy. <laughs> and then we'd, we'd run out the last second and we'd try to clean everything up. Others of us would hopefully uh, intensify our efforts for the Lord because the time is short. Jesus is telling us that we should live like that all the time because we don't know when he's coming. No one knows the day or the hour. Watch, therefore, verse 13. When Rebecca was pregnant with our middle child, our first son, Alistair, this is sad to say, but there was a conference that I wanted to be at. It took place at the same time as the due date. Now, anybody that's been around, anybody that's had kids, or if you've had them yourself, the due dates often are wrong, (laughs) which is also a problem, right? But we had had one child. She was a little bit late. Figured the next child could be early, could be late. Who knows, but the due date, you know? Anyway, long story short, a flight was booked Uh, We had a conversation. She said, hey, if you want to risk it, it's it's up to you. And the plan was, if you go into labor, if you feel anything at all, you let me know. I'm on the first plane. I'm right back. Well, you'll be happy to know that people around me gave me advice and encouraged me not to do that and said, you know, do you really want to risk not being there for the birth of your child? I thought that was probably smart. So trying not to be a fool, I listened to that. And he was born the day before I would have gotten back from the conference. So, you were right, and I was wrong. <laughs> now, if I had known for certain that he would be born on April 12th, we wouldn't have even had a conversation. There'd be no flight. There'd be, no, it, it, there'd be nothing. My son's being born. Now, you might say it should have been that way anyway, but that's another point. <laughs> Well, there are also five foolish virgins in this parable, and they point to the fact that not everyone will be at home when the time comes. And that's the third thing Jesus tells us. He says, Don't be surprised by Jesus' coming. He's saying to you, right where you sit, do not be surprised at his coming. Some will be caught off guard, some will be caught off guard. Jesus makes that point very clear. If all ten virgins knew the day and the hour, they would have had enough oil, but they didn't, and they gambled, and they lost. All ten took the same, looked the same, except for the flask of extra oil. Think about that. All ten got the invitation to the wedding. All ten accepted the invitation to some level and got dressed for it. All ten are bridesmaids or virgins all have lamps, each one of them. They, they picked up their lamp. They all get sleepy. So it looks the same in the delay. Everybody's wondering when. What's the delay? What's the holdup? How much longer? Maranatha. They're all waiting. But they're not already. So I've just said that some will be caught off guard, but the thing is, is that it's actually worse than that. More than you think will not be ready. More than you think will not be ready. That's part of the surprise. Think about this. In this parable, one of two virgins are not ready and will be shut out. 50%. That's a big number. Prior to this, he says a similar thing in chapter 24. If you look at verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. That's 50%. 50%. Look at the next verse. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. You remember the parable that Jesus tells of, of the soils? It's actually worse than 50% in that regard. Remember that? You share the gospel, you spread the seed far and wide, and it falls on, falls on four types of soils. How many soils take root, believe, and are genuine? You can answer that. One of four. 25%. So the, the failure rate of gospel professions, the failure rate of gospel presentations is 75% in that parable. Those who are not ready in all three of the examples in our context here is 50%. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, or verse 11, start there. He says, Afterward, the, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. I don't know you. Now they got invited, they responded. They weren't ready. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. This should remind you of another scary, eerie place in Scripture. Possibly what many have said is the the scariest verse in the entire Bible. In this same book, in chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus says that at the judgment, many, not a few, Not not some mistaken people, many, will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, that's his title. That's a term of endearment. That's a term of respect. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach the gospel in your name? Didn't we... By some amazing supernatural power, perform miracles in your name. And Jesus says, and I will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Now, how many? Many. It is a scary reality that it's not just some that will be caught off guard, but more than you think will. I am a pastor of a church and I I tremble at this verse. If this is true, and I believe it is, there are people that I currently love and walk with And spend time counseling and share verses with. And they say, will you pray with me? And I say, yes. And I say, will you pray for me? And they say, yes. And on that day, they will go to hell. And I don't know who they are. I don't know which ones. And then I look in the mirror. And I realize there are two pastors at our church that are full time. If the numbers hold true then one of us would be lost. Now Jesus is not saying that in every circumstance the number is 50%. What he's telling us though, a lot of people over the centuries will associate themselves in some way with Jesus and his church, but they will actually not be believers. And you know what exposes it? It's the crisis of his second coming. That's what shows it. And you don't know until then. Jesus makes this point all, all with the with the wheat and the, and the chaff, with the sheep and the goats. The parable of the farmer and how someone comes in behind him and sows in uh, false uh, uh, um, uh, wheat that, that, that isn't real. And he realizes it, but he can't do anything about it because if he plucks them up, he'll ruin the whole crop. All over the place, Jesus tells us about this. Which means, church, think about this. As you sit here, this is not just a sermon for the person that's not here today. I'm I'm with you. I think like that sometimes. I think, I wish so and so was here. I wish they could hear this. But look again at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Well, who's he talking to? Chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, it's the disciples. Jesus didn't lead us in his providence to hear this parable today for someone who's not here. Jesus led us to this parable today for us, for you, for me, to be reminded that he is coming and to be ready. And for some of us, that means exposing not being ready. In that day, Jesus says, it will be like the days of Noah. In chapter 24, verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does he mean? Verse 38, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, And they were, look at that, unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That reality is true for the whole world. But this parable tells us that it will be like that for some of us in the church. Even though he has warned us that it will be like a thief Even though he has warned us it will be like a thief in the night. It will be in the middle of a work day for some. It will be on some people's honeymoon. Some will be pregnant at that time and anticipating the birth of their child. All will be going on as before. And as his delay grows long, many will show that they don't believe by falling away ahead of time. Some will hang in there. Because that's just what you do. You go to church. Be good people. Add it in, you know, have a whole life. You'll notice that it's the crisis of Jesus' unexpected coming that reveals the difference between the virgins. And you might think it's harsh at the end of the parable for Jesus to say that he never knew them when they had been invited and had done almost all to prepare and even came back to be let in. If you're reading carefully, you might notice that. and You say, but, but, but look at what they 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 made a lot of effort. And then even after you came and you, and you missed them, they still made the effort to come back again. And Jesus teaches us that in that day there will be no second chances. But what Jesus is really telling us with that is the fact that they did not prepare for the crisis shows that they did not know the Lord to begin with. It's not that they knew him and they made a mistake. It's that they never believed. That's why Jesus says, even though they, some prophesied, they did miracles, they, did, they, they were good church people, they were pastors, they were missionaries, they were, they were campus ministry outreach leaders, they were good people in the community, even though they did all of that, they didn't do it for the Lord, they didn't do it with the Lord, they didn't do it with any faith in Jesus. And there's a trillion stories, a billion stories That probably could be told of all the ways that that gets worked out. The question for you and me is, are we ready? And how do you know? Let me give you a couple of ideas, a couple of ways to start thinking about and examining your own heart. One way is that you live your life as though he's coming soon. See, in the parable, the virgins who expected that he might come in the night got extra oil. I thought, it, 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 it might be. We, we should be ready. The other ones, not so much. Jonathan Edwards had among his resolutions two that capture this sentiment that I want to share with you. He said to, of himself, he says, I am resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. How many times have we let that slip? Another one is he said, I'm resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected that it would, it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet and see Jesus. If we lived in that regard, we would be living in view of his coming with expectation and we would live differently. Matthew 25, the next chapter after the parable of the talents, 31 through 46 is where Jesus tells us that our faith will be proven by our deeds. So our faith is what saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of any works that we've done of our own. So our deeds in no way contribute to salvation. We can't do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. We must believe on Jesus asking for mercy because of his death and resurrection. But having done so and received his mercy... We then live new lives, renewed lives, lives that are alive to God, lives that are dependent on God, lives that love the things that the Lord loves. Not flawless, but we live for Him. It marks us, and we have deeds to show for it. Not because, again, we're not going to go to the judgment and say, Lord, I did all of this, now aren't I good? But because we're going to go to Him and say, Lord, You are merciful and You are kind and you so Changed me and opened my eyes by your grace. I also did these things because I love you. Those deeds will prove that sentiment. Do you have those? Are you serving God in this way? Another way is to consider how well your trust in Jesus currently holds up under crises. James Montgomery Boyce once wrote, It is not the case that their true condition Is revealed by lesser, is it, sorry, it's a question. Is it not the case that their true condition is revealed by lesser, but nevertheless real crises, experiences now? I believe that you can preview the results of the final judgment by the way that you react to crisis now. I think that's true. And I'm fearful. (laughs) What do you do when things get really bad? How does your faith hold up there? Are you exposed as not walking with the Lord? Are you exposed as someone who's been, been light with the faith? Andrew Fuller has set, is said to have remarked that a man has only as much religion as he can command in trial. So one way is to live as though he's coming soon and to examine the, the, the deeds, the fruit of your life. Another way is to examine how your faith holds up in crisis Another very real and practical way is through meaningful church membership. So Chris was talking earlier about how we're not just here checking, checking things off and going through the motions, but we're actually, we're actually working for one another's good. That's why I don't just say membership in a church, but I say meaningful church membership. So you can, you, can you can do the dress rehearsal. You can put the bridesmaid's dress on. You can pick up an, a, a flask, or i.e., in our language, you can join a church, you can, you can say the right things. You can take on baptism. And you can go through the motions. But that won't save you, and it also won't help you. It might make you a more religious person. It might make you a little different than a lot of other people. But that's all it'll do. But meaningful church membership, well, that is one of the biggest benefits that God has left us in the delay. So that as we live out the commands of Jesus, we expose our lives to each other. As you and I are vulnerable, and we get close enough to let people see our flaws. See, that's that's the lie of sin. Sin tells you, if you tell somebody about this, then they're going to expose you as a fraud. And so the safe and the smart and the right thing to do is just hide it, just pray, just do it your way. See, sin would love to get you alone, because it can have you then. But in the church, we have to be able, this has to be the kind of community that someone can share sin and the church, while taking it seriously, can love you and say, well, let's help you. At the same time, you get close enough to maybe, maybe you don't even know you're in sin and you allow for, in humility, you allow someone to speak into your life and say, brother, sister, you shouldn't be going down that road. Do you know where that road goes? Meaningful church membership is opening yourself up to that and saying, I'm here because I want that. When you allow that into your life, when you submit to that, or if you're ever in the process of discipline, maybe you find yourself hardened in sin, and you're, you're on the other end of things, and you, you think everybody here is a jerk, <laughs> and, and the pastors have no idea what they're talking about, and they're all full of themselves and self-righteous, and you're on that end, in that moment... Meaningful membership looks like saying maybe my own personal assessment of myself could be wrong. And listening in humility. And when you do that, when you live that kind of life with each other, you protect each other. You get to have like sort of a mini judgment with each other. I know the world says don't judge me, don't judge me. But you actually want some judgment in your life. Because you want people to help you evaluate your life. Because you don't want to go to this judgment having no idea what you're facing. But when you're in a church of loving community, where the gospel is held out and it is central and all of those comments and thoughts and words and deeds with each other is based upon that, well, there you have the protection of a church encouraging you, spurring you on, and affirming you and saying, brother, good job. Sister, I know you're going through a trial, but I see the Lord working in you and I am encouraged and that affirms you and strengthens you we must be ready for his coming and that's the final and primary thing Jesus tells us in this parable be ready for Jesus' coming again in verse 13 he says watch therefore and that's where I'm getting this from he says now is the time to get ready now is the time to get ready because the virgins when they go back it's too late Readiness at the time is what demonstrates genuine faith, and that's why He won't open the door. The wise hear the warning and believe the promise so that they prepare for His delayed coming and they watch for Him. Sometimes people think, when I get things together, well, then I'm going to join the church. When when I get it all together, I'm there with you. The Bible warns us all over the place that the time is now, not then. And really, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, if you're a mess Get in here. (laughs) A friend that I have and have spoken to many times is waiting for things to slow down in his life. This summer, he told me, he said, "Trav, bro, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I try to read the Bible when I can. I mean, I got some struggles, but but man, when things slow down, I'm gonna do this." I warned him that that time might not come. You don't have then you have right now be ready for Jesus coming the time is now to get ready and the way we do that is we watch for him by watching your heart you watch your heart Chris was quoting from Hebrews earlier which has many passages that warn us about falling away and not enduring and the culprit is our own hearts What would make us do that is a hard heart. So the writer of the Hebrews says today, while it's called today, "Don't, don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness, in the rebellion. Jesus is showing us that inward renewal is what ultimately prepares us. Inward renewal. That is why all those formal expressions of life in Christ through the church, through baptism and taking communion and participating in the life of the church, those things matter greatly. But they don't save you and they don't actually renew your heart. They can if you already know the Lord. If you know Him, they can renew strength. They can revive a heart that's weak. But if a heart is hard and full of sin and doesn't know the Lord, well, those things won't change your heart. What you need is you need God to renew your heart. You need Him to replace it. The Bible uses language of stone versus flesh. In Psalm 51, many of you, uh, most of you should know, and if you're new to the church, you you, you might know the name David. When he sinned greatly by uh, murder and adultery, Psalm 51 is his confession to the Lord. And in that Psalm, he says to God, create in me a new heart. That's what we need. That's why the New Testament says that a Jew is a Jew who is one inwardly, not outwardly. That's why Jesus was able to rebuke the Pharisees in his day. They had all the formal expressions of the faith, but they weren't renewed on the inside. You and I cannot rely on the group that we associate with. The church membership, the church that you're part of, the campus outreach, your parents' faith, your grandparents' faithfulness, your husband or your wife's faithfulness, or their dedication to the Lord will not save you. Eastern Christianity uh, critiques evangelicalism to say that we focus too much on the individual. And here is a classic example of how Jesus warns us that individually each one of us must stand before the Lord. Each one of us must be renewed personally. And then we join the group. The group can help us but the group won't stand for us at the day of judgment. Each one must be renewed themselves. For the five foolish virgins being associated with the five wise did not help them when the bridegroom returned. God's salvation is amazingly corporate, but we follow him first as individuals who have responded to the gospel. If you're here today and the Lord is convicting you and and telling you you are not ready, you need to know that Jesus' death His first coming was to provide the means for you to come to him even now. His death is the wrath that we deserve and everyone who is not ready will receive on that day. But he's already poured it out on his son Jesus. That is what the cross is about. So that it's completely exhausted on him. And God raised him from the dead as proof that everything Jesus said about himself and about his death is in fact true so that you today can call on the Lord and He will renew you. We can't renew our own hearts. We know that, right? Well, you look at this passage and you say, well, what can, what can I do? If I can't do anything, what can I do? What you can do is respond to the Lord. If the Lord is exposing... The, what Jesus does with this is He shows us our hearts by telling stories like this. And some of us hear this and we say, that's me. That's Jesus talking. If that's you... Jesus is saying, repent of your sins and ask him to change you. He will forgive you and he will receive you into his kingdom. If that's you here today, do not leave without speaking to one of the pastors here. Now, I just want to say this very briefly. Some of us have very tender consciences. And at the least little thing in our life, we assume that this proves that we never knew the Lord. What I want to say to you, first of all, is that if that's you, if, you're, if, if you have been renewed by the Lord and you are seeking to follow him and you have a tender conscience, what you need to do is, first of all, give that to the Lord, but second of all, trust those in the church around you. As you share to people and you say, there's no way I'm a Christian, and everyone around you says, uh, excuse me, your life tells me I'm not a Christian, then you should, you should trust them. You should trust the Lord to work through the church And submit to that. Share what's on your heart. But you shouldn't, the fact that you are concerned is is one more grace in your life that shows that the Lord is at work in you. The foolish virgins weren't concerned. They didn't think they were going to miss anything. So a question. Do you examine your heart? Do you consider that you might not be ready? I'm a pastor. As I prepared for this, I was on my knees and I'm asking God, is it me? Because the Bible teaches us to examine our hearts. Do you rely on the group to have you ready, but you don't seek Jesus yourself? Seek Him. Are you personally ready? Can you stand before the Lord? Watching or staying awake is a spiritual theme. It's taken from military backgrounds and it's applied to staying awake for the time when Jesus is coming. And it means to stay devoted to the Lord. If you know Him and you are strengthened today and you are excited about His second coming and the Lord is renewing that strength even through all of this, what you need to do is keep seeking Him. Every day. Every day, say, Lord, today, help me to follow you. We do this with so many things. You got a girlfriend or a boyfriend that's going to arrive, you're ready. You're getting ready. You got somebody you don't want to arrive, you're getting ready to avoid them. (laughs) You got a VIP guest, you're cleaning. You're getting ready, you're prepping. birth of a child, you're nesting. You're putting the the thing together and that thing together and you're buying the junk. (laughs) And every little cute outfit, you got to have it. Preppers who are prepared for the end of society, they're building bunkers and they're putting high def TVs in them and they're putting water and all kinds. People are getting ready and they do it all the time. You got a plane to catch tomorrow? You're not packing in the morning. You're getting ready tonight. Now, some of you I know are saying, well, maybe. But if you're leaving at 6, you're not packing in the morning. You pack tonight. The wise are ready for Jesus' coming. Are you? Do you trust that Jesus is coming? Are you anticipating his return? Will you be surprised when he comes? Are you ready? Lord Jesus, make us ready. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would use this rehearsal of the coming day. In the reminder of Jesus' words, some of us may have not read for a long time or maybe never heard preached or maybe we've read them even this week. That through the reminder of these things, God, we're asking that you would make us ready. God, we're not looking for any sort of false professions or some sort of emotional response, but God, we are looking for the spirit of God to convict us and to convince us and to purify us for that day. God, I pray that everyone in this room, somehow by your miraculous, sovereign grace, that no one in this room would be caught without oil. No one. Not the children in the back. Not a wife, not a husband, not a pastor, not a deacon, not a musician. No one in this room would be caught unaware. So God, we pray, please, please, have mercy in Jesus' name.